Hey everyone, Lauren from Law Trades here. Welcome. Today we're going to be talking about how non-JDs can save you time and money for your legal department. Many of you are already familiar with Law Trades, but for those who are new, welcome again. Law Trades is a tech-enabled workforce of legal professionals that provide value and efficiency to busy in-house legal teams. Feel free to ping us after the event and we'd be happy to answer more questions. Um, so today I'm joined by some awesome panelists, Eric Lintel of Archer, Aviation, Kelsey Copeland of NASCAR, and Trina Walker from Trinet. All have successfully built legal teams themselves and have awesome insights and value. So I thought I'd kick things off pretty organically today by having each of you give a brief intro, talk about your career path to where you guys are now, and maybe give a little eagle eye view onto what the current non-JD hires look like on your team. Why don't I kick it off with Eric? Great. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, so I'm, I'm currently at Archer Aviation, but uh, I took a little bit of an unusual role in that right after law school. I went straight in-house. I've been in-house my entire career. I started off essentially at Dish Network, spent a number of years there, and then moved out to Silicon Valley and, and spent a number of years at Verifone. And then from Verifone, joined Fitbit. I spent eight years at Fitbit. I was the second legal hire there and then helped build the department from only a couple of folks up to 30 plus. And we went through the IPO process and eventual sale of the company to Google over that time period. And the company went from 200 people to almost 2000. So it was a pretty great adventure and pretty interesting time to be there and seeing the kind of seismic shift that was going on in the, I'd say, in-house legal approach to getting things done. And lucky for me, our first non-legal hire actually started within a couple of weeks of me. I didn't actually make the decision to hire it. Our, our general counsel did hire that role. She sat right next to me and we spent all eight years trying to devise how we could do things better and more efficiently as a department. Very cool. Kelsey, why don't you hop in? Sure. So similar to Eric, I took the non-traditional route of also starting my career in-house. And I actually interned for International Speedway Corporation, which was the publicly traded company arm of the NASCAR family-owned business, relied heavily on non-JD roles during my time as an intern. And shortly after graduation came full-time with ISC and which now merged into the NASCAR entity. And you know, throughout kind of my evolution of my career as a, a young junior attorney through now my more senior role, and the evolution of, of NASCAR's business, we've heavily relied on all of our legal professionals. So really excited for, for the conversation this afternoon. Awesome. Trina? So I'm currently with Trinet, but I actually got my start in a traditional environment. So I am a non-JD professional, but I started with DLA Piper and moved on to Baker McKenzie, working in practice group development and doing some writing and, and whatnot for an FCPA handbook. and was looking to kind of expand. Like at the time, legal operations wasn't a significant role and you weren't really hearing about it. And once I came over to Trinet, I initially started off as just sort of managing a regulatory compliance program, saw a need and started to help to develop the program. We also had someone prior to me in an attorney role that was doing this very thing that had actually kicked it off. But Something that I actually believe in is that there are certain things, and operationally, I don't know that the skill set necessarily matches the, that of an attorney necessarily. I think that it requires a different set of skills. And we have found that changing it from an attorney managed position into a non JD professional role has actually been more beneficial to 
the law department overall. So, and as far as hires, we actually have a 90 person in-house legal team and less than a third of those are attorney roles. So we have found that there has been a lot of benefit in utilizing non-JD professionals. And while we're chatting, Trina, and you're kind of giving us a glimpse of that team, such a large team, can you give us an idea of when you had decided to make your first non-JD hire? Why? You know, and, and that larger team, did you come in and, and build from the ground up? Or, you know, did you have a part in that process? And what was that inflection point exactly? So prior to me even joining Trinet, we had some non-JD roles, but they were the traditional paralegal roles. And as, you know, the business evolved as just business in general has evolved even outside of our own company, we found that the way that we had originally set things up and the work that we were necessarily actually having the paralegals do didn't really support the broader need of the department. So in evaluating the work that we had, the work that we had attorneys actually doing and really taking a look at like, are they actually providing guidance? Are they mitigating risk? Like, are they doing the things that we would traditionally hire an attorney to do? Or is the work that they're actually doing something that could be better managed by a non-JD professional, someone that is a seasoned paralegal or just a general compliance professional? And so in doing that evaluation, we had found that in the way that we were managing our claims group, as an example, we didn't need attorneys for the work that was being done. They could very easily partner with outside counsel if you had a seasoned enough paralegal. So, you know, it required a little bit of shifting and and things like that. But in in making that transition, it was incredibly helpful to our business. And obviously, ultimately, we saved money because attorneys are a lot more expensive than our our non-JD professionals. And we have actually found that we've been refining the model over a period of time, but it's worked incredibly well. Right. And I know, Eric, you kind of hinted the fact that you had a non-JD hire within the first week of you, you, you joining. I'd love for you to give a little bit more color on when you made your first hire, what that looked like, how you scoped it out. Yeah. I mean, when I, so when I joined Fitbit, we were about eight months, six to eight months from IPOing. And so at that point, we were really trying to get our hands around everything that was going on at the company. Right. I mean, the the general counsel hadn't joined until well into the life cycle of the company. And so a lot of problems really new and growing, but we had to act fast and move quickly so that the company could move forward with its IPO within the time frame that they were looking to do. And very quickly, I sat down with our commercial paralegal who joined around the same time I did and talking to her about what she wanted to do. And she's like, what I don't want to do is continue to do what I did previously, which was help with commercial negotiations on NDAs and other things. I was like, so what do you want to do? She's like, I want to zoom out and figure out what are all the things we need to put in place? Like from a SOX compliance perspective, we need to have our arms around all of our contracting processes. We need to know hands around all of uh, our IP portfolio, those type of things. She said, I want to look at how we're doing these things, what information we need to collectively have at our fingertips at all uh, times of the day, and be able to look at what are the things the attorneys are doing and how can they do them more efficiently? What are the tools I can bring into the department to help us work better, faster, smarter? And I said, that sounds amazing. We'll figure out how to negotiate the NDAs and the other agreements. You go figure out how to make us way more efficient, right? And so we kind of gave her that charter, which is like, sit down with everyone on the team and talk to them about how they are getting their jobs done every day. And you look across us and say, how can we get more efficient? What are the things that we're all doing that we can do better? And one of the examples that we saw really early on was it was taking our attorneys about an hour to go from a finalized negotiated contract to putting together an email 
to the executives and sending it out for e-signature. If you look at that across, we were doing 5,000 contracts a year, right? That's 5,000 hours we could bring back in the system. So trying to look at things like that, where we could really make some pretty easy inroads, but give people a lot more time back. Right. And Kelsey, were you a part of bringing on, you know, the first non-JD role at NASCAR? I was not. I actually, so my experience is a little interesting. When I was brought on ISC at the time, now NASCAR had lost quite a few attorneys in a short period of time. They moved on to, um, you know, work with the Cubs and other sport organizations. And so when I came in, I was really the JD that was looking to all the non-attorney roles for support and advice and learning the business and what does the contract process look like and how does this legal department run because the only other attorney here at the time got moved to the C-suite. And so on the legal department floor, it was me and a whole bunch of non-attorney roles that knew how to run the legal department and knew what the expectation was for, for me as a junior attorney coming in. And they were really great about getting me up to speed and teaching me the business early on in my career. So my experience is a little bit different in that, you know, I was kind of the, the role that was brought on essentially by the legal professionals that were on board. Very cool. Very cool. So I guess, you know, from this conversation and and Eric, you kind of alluded to a lot of this, I I think a lot of people on this call watching are likely, you know, at scrappy startups, maybe they're sole GC, you know, they're trying to build out a legal team and they don't even know where to begin. You know, how do you assess or what what are some metrics of success and how you've assessed whether you're going to bring on somebody who's a non-JD, a professional versus extra legal talent to manage, you know, offloading stuff on contracts? Trina, why don't you, you jump in for us? So the way that we've begun in terms of determining whether or not we need additional legal support or we need a, a non-JD professional is we've done a lot of process mapping. We've kind of looked at it like just high level, like what are all of the functions that we have that sit within our department? What do they each respectively do? And we do have a number of transactional items that exist within the legal realm. And so taking a look at each of those and understanding and actually taking the time to map out the process to understand what it looks like so that we can get a general sense of like the amount of time it's taking, where the gaps are, and what the need might be. Do we have existing tools we can leverage? How do we want to, like, do we need to acquire something different? What makes sense for our business and the things we need to achieve? And everyone's department is different depending on what it is your company does and how you leverage your legal department. And so in our space, we had to build a baseline essentially to understand like the amount of time it was taking. So we understood what our success looked like. And once we understood what that looked like, because we have a number of transactional items that we were responsible for, and a lot of them were taking a lot of man hours and then a lot of resources in order to get them achieved. So as an example, something really simple that we're responsible for is employment verifications. But we do that for our customers as well, not just for our colleagues. So it's 300,000 plus people. And we had one person trying to do it. We didn't actually, and we had a a partnership with a vendor, but we were still doing 60% of the work as we found out. And doing that and that manual work was taking just to even get through the mail was three and a half hours. So We had to really think about the processes we were using, how we were getting things done, other teams outside of legal that we could leverage to get things done. And so the way that we've kind of continued to make those changes in respect of how we add people on has been through those baselines. And it's been the slow progression because it only started about two years ago. But in making those changes as the verifications example, 
we've actually now gotten it down to she spends about an hour a day on verifications period. So we've eliminated the mail piece, we've eliminated the manual piece, we've you know revised reporting and other things to allow for her to have space to do other things. So I think a lot of it really starts with evaluating the work that you're doing and understanding the time that you need in order to get those things done so that you understand what tools you may require in order to do them faster and better. Yeah. And Eric, what about you in, in conceptualizing your team? You know, how did you, what's your thought process behind, you know, building out your, your legal professional talent versus attorneys? Yeah, I mean, I think exactly what Trina said. I, I would echo a lot of those same sentiments, which is like, you, you've got to be disciplined at looking at your end-to-end workflow. Right, and understanding what's being done in all of those stages and where you actually are actually making a legal decision, where a lot of that is, is moving it along the workflow. And so I start with our highest volume things first, because that's where we can potentially make the most impact, right? So I, I mean, when we were at Fitbit, we saw right, this escalation where we were hiring pretty heavy on the commercial side. And then we saw that, like, look, that was because we were touching almost every contract that flowed to the company. There's got to be a better way to do this. So we set a goal of essentially like that 70% of our contracts would flow through our processes with little to no touch from the lawyers, right, until it was ready for the right stage. So we strive into like a good intake process, getting the right information from the, the business teams, right, then reviewing whatever those contract changes are and surfacing those in a way for attorneys where they could very quickly look at something, make the key decisions they have to make, like if you look at an NDA, it's typically like five or six changes. You're changing governing law, you're changing term, you're changing mm-hmm. uh, a few other things, right? And they could probably make those decisions if you surface them in the right way in less than a minute, right? And right. so if you can do things like that, where they're not spending all of this time running the red line, looking at the things they have to do through their process, where if they get an email alert that says, okay, here it is, you click on this system, right? It will show you the exact five things you need to know in order to review this contract and approve it. Done. Move on. It's, yeah. So we try to get to like one or two click decision making processes for attorneys where they're just looking at stuff and moving on, right? And that's the way to kind of drive volume and discipline. And then if you, so if I'm looking at that, if it only takes an attorney five minutes to review an NDA, less than five minutes to review an NDA, then I look at the full NDA life cycle. I say, okay, what I really need is I need a legal operations professional who can help me build that process, right? And that's going to be the more important thing. And so it's really finding that balance of making sure you're not upfront hiring a bunch of attorneys that then you're later going to engineer out by putting the right operations in place, right? And so that's really what, as we've tried to build things at Archer, that's really what we've been mindful of is not over-rotating in the early days at hiring a bunch of attorneys before we get to kind of mature operations and start to operate more efficiently. Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and Kelsey, anything else to add here? I do want to kind of ask you to layer in something else, which I think is top of mind right now as we're segueing in is, is taking this information. You know, now you've distinguished whether or not you want an attorney hire a JD or a non-JD professional. And how do you bring that to the C-suite? You know, where does that buy-in happen and what's your process behind that? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the interesting things about most legal departments is we're a non-revenue generating department. We're not out there, you know, really looking at the balance sheet. You see the legal department as something that's kind of expensive for the C-suite. So we're, we have to work at generating buy-in is identifying all of those efficiencies that especially our non-attorney roles can help us build within not just the legal department, but the company more broadly. And so I mean, for a long time at ISC and and NASCAR, the bulk of the agreements that would come in, and we're a highly transactional business, bulk of the agreements that would come in 
float across somebody's desk in the legal department, primarily our non-JD roles. And so we rely heavily on our legal coordinators, our contract coordinators, our paralegals to help us really identify, you know, how much time are you spending on cranking out agreements that could really be a template? And can we build efficiencies there? And it's, you know, empowering our, our non-JD roles to do that, but they have to have the time to do that. So we can't stretch them too thin and not have enough people on hand to to do that work and also identify some areas of, of efficiency. So that's where it's really important to get the buy-in of the C-suite when, when looking to hire a, a non-attorney role because they do help us constantly develop efficiencies because so much is flowing through the legal department outside of just the attorney's purview. Right. And Trina, what about you and talking to the C-suite or trying to We've had a lot of success in getting buy-in and it's, Mm -hmm. you know, to help them understand that legal is more than just a cost center and how in our space, it has been about how we're actually supporting our customer as well. And so what we've done is we've taken a look at like, this is how this translates into how we service our customer. We've, you know, identified certain functions that will ultimately reduce the number of attorneys or resources. So whenever we, I mean, it's got to be more than just about the numbers, but when we're presenting our business case, we do, we do definitely leverage like both time savings numbers as well as cost savings numbers and what that translates to in terms of productivity as well and, and, and how that changes the way people are getting their work done. Right. And then for Eric, kicking it over to you, Obviously, your approach to the C-suite, when you're thinking about more traditional management, how have you driven the value of these particular roles where there might be somebody who needs a little bit more more convincing? I think it's really a, a shift in conversation of how people are thinking about the legal department. I mean, I think especially it depends on the type of company and what you're doing. But at Archer right now, we're in R&D mode, so we're not doing a ton of, ton of uh, sales. But at, at Fitbit, we had a pretty big business-to-business sales arm and, and contracting around that. And we saw it as a huge strategic advantage when when we have our sales folks out there pitching, can we get to close on a contract a lot quicker than the competitor, right? And so we really pitched it as a, a strategic advantage to getting us to deal close and having more forecastable revenue right, that you're generating. So depending on what you're doing, I mean, and we started to prove that we could bring in time to deal close by implementing processes, procedures, bringing in the right legal ops folks, allowing our sales folks to be able to drive through the whole process right in the system that they want to use, whether it's Salesforce or something else, right? So showing those operational efficiencies that actually allow the company to be more successful on strategic initiatives, I think is the key. And start thinking about it differently. One of the other things we did at Fitbit was we did research at scale. Right. In the early days of Fitbit, when we were doing research at scale, we were talking about how do we do research across 50 people? By the time I left, we were doing studies across 200,000 people. Right. And how do you get research agreements in place across that type of scale? You can't do it without a legal team that has scaled and has the right operations in place. So it allowed us to develop products that were far better because we had greater reach. So if we didn't build out and invest in those things, we could have never reached the scale or had the efficiencies that we were needed to to make the company successful. Yeah. And then when you're thinking about how you go and talk to the C-suite, Kelsey or Trina, Eric, any feel free to anyone to jump in. What do you do to kind of present your data? 
Are you more formal in your approach? What are you doing to get that additional buy-in? Are these candid conversations? Is there a layer of trust that you're building in terms of you know working with these different you know pillars of the business? What do you typically do tactically when you're ready to bring somebody on? Well, I know that for us anyways, I usually develop a deck. I make sure that I've got all my numbers in order and I've got a deck. Now that we've done this a number of times, we've obviously developed relationships. So we already have a foundation from which to start. But obviously, developing those relationships plays an important role in how you go about presenting. But we typically do develop a deck and make sure that we've got you know numbers and data to support what we're presenting. We do tend to, even though we have these relationships, we still tend to take a formal approach so that we can make sure that everything is understood about what it is we're, we're asking for and the basis for the, the reason why we're asking for. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's no different than what you would expect to see from other areas of the business when they're asking for either. I mean, you're asking for typically either more headcount resources or more resources in the form of software or some type of other initiative, right? And if IT was presenting, hey, we need XYZ software, or XYZ platform, you'd have to go say, okay, why to the CFO, right? So it's taking the very same approach you would expect from those other departments and say, okay, I want a e-discovery platform that I want to bring in-house because I'm spending X million a year to do e-discovery at outsourced vendors. And I think I can bring it in, plug it into our systems. It'll cost me $300,000 or whatever it is, and it will save me $2.5 million over the first year. So building out that use case, right? And I think it resonates pretty quickly and you say, okay, I'm going to need one or two headcount to implement this and run it. But you can do things like that pretty quickly. And I think uh, if you present it in that fashion in a way that I'd say those executives are, are used to, right, evaluating decisions, then it's, it's not a legal type view of it, right? They're just viewing it as, okay, right? You're building out the business operations we would expect from a a legal department in the 21st century. Right. And and Kelsey, how about at NASCAR? Is there, you know, this layer of, you know, traditional management that may not quite understand legal ops and and kind of what you're doing on the professional side of the house? I think there can be, yeah. And and ultimately, just to kind of add on to what what Eric and, and Trina mentioned, it's, Really, the formality of that conversation, I think, at least in, in my experience, really relies on, you know, has has the business and has the C-suite seen this as a pain point? Do mm-hmm. they already kind of going into that conversation understand what we're trying to resolve here? And that always makes the conversation so much easier. And especially in sport, and, and I think there's other industries that where this is true as well, but typically your, your sports teams, even to some extent at, at a league level, you might just have one JD role, one GC that all of the legal work rolls through. But especially at NASCAR, as our business has continued to evolve and grow over time, it wasn't just growing in the sense that we needed more attorneys to do the work. It was, we needed support at all levels. We needed corporate paralegals to handle increasing litigation. We needed contract managers to handle additional workflow there. We needed legal coordinators and ops groups to help us kind of restructure how our legal department was taking in workflow. So I think a lot of those conversations are easy to have when the C-suite has also seen the business grow in a way that requires the same evolution within the legal department. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you're, many folks on the call probably, and this is something that we see frequently at law trades, you know, it's the need of sole GC that doesn't quite know what legal, legal ops is and conceptualizing what these roles are distinguishing from each other. How are you guys modeling, you know, say your legal ops people? Is that somebody that you prefer have a JD 
out of the gate or these non-JD professionals, legal professionals? You know, we see both on our platform, some of our legal talent, especially in the legal ops world, which is very hot right now, right? You know, many of them are former attorneys, but we have rock star non-JD talent as well. Do you have a preference when you're setting up shop, particularly in the ops side, Trina? My preference is non-JD professionals typically. So we're usually, depending on the makeup, so I've got about eight people on my team. So depending on like the maturity of your legal ops team and your and your legal team more generally, having one person doing everything, if you're in a smaller business or smaller legal team might make sense. If you have a larger business, larger legal team, you may need others. So what we've found is because we have very formalized processes as far as like how we get things done, right? We've got a whole portfolio team that we have to submit to, and then it goes to our executive leadership team. And so we've got this whole bureaucracy built around how we get things done. But when we're thinking about how we actually get the work done, we need people that understand development. We need people that understand analytics. We need people that understand how to project manage. So it's a different set of skills than what I would typically need from an attorney. So we have never at any time, I mean, not that we would exclude if someone was taking a different path, but the types of people that we're looking for would not generally be a JD professional. Right. And Eric? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a tough question. I mean, I think I myself am a JD, but like I would say I spend probably 75% of my day on legal ops, right? Try not to practice law as much as I can throughout the day, <laughs> right? And try to figure out how we can do things better, faster, smarter, right? right? I mean, that's where my passion lies, not in evaluating whether or not I'm okay with North Carolina governing law versus Delaware on, on a particular <laughs> contract. So to me, I, I hope to automate myself out of a job someday, right? <laughs> so in a lot of ways, I try to instill that in everyone on our legal team. Like your job is also like everyone has a hand in legal operations, whether or not you're attorney or not. You need to identify the pain points in your job so that we can come help you figure out how to solve for those. And I think over the years, the teams that I've worked with have done that. And then I think you see a lot of reward on the back end. But I'm definitely open to both. I definitely see the value in having folks that have much more of kind of a biz ops background and have done that for years. But I also see the value in having lawyers come at it, knowing how they've approached things and where things have gone wrong and, and figuring out how to get lawyers to adopt the legal ops that the legal ops folks are trying to put in place. So I, I think it's 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 really important to try to bridge the two and make sure that you're doing a really great job of... Because I, th- I think when you talk about a lot of the questions have been, how do you get support from management and CEOs to, to take on legal ops? But I think you've also... A really important part is you've got to get your legal team to do it, right? And they've got to be all in on, on legal ops. And I think that's a really challenging piece of it as well. And so you've got to get adoption from within. You've got to get adoption from the top of the organization. You've also got to drive adoption around the other business units in the organization. And and those are, in a lot of ways, three different challenges. And so I think having folks with very diverse kind of backgrounds and views is helpful. Yeah. And Kelsey, anything to add there? Oh, I, I completely agree. I think when when addressing any sort of legal ops issue, we tend to default. And it's just because of the way the workflow comes in here at NASCAR. But we do default to our non-JD roles to help us problem solve a lot of those legal ops issues. But bridging that with communication from the attorneys and how do we make sure that any sort of new implementation that we're doing, the attorneys are excited about and want to use it 
so that it actually does create the efficiency that it's meant to solve. That's super important. And that's why, you know, any sort of legal operations project, we at least have one attorney on that project team. But for the most part, it's built out of our non-GD roles. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of structure, as we're thinking about how you guys have built out your teams, are your legal ops managers, are they communicating with other parts of the business? Are they, do they kind of have conversations outside of the, the legal department or is it outfitted with you guys at the top and communicating? I'd love to get your input on what that framework looks like. And in thinking about this, I'm just thinking about churn and, and you know, how teams shift and change. And as you guys have team members, non-JD legal professionals that are there and building their own name, like how do they feel like they have an impact at the team and not outside of the department, but within the company itself? Trina, how does that operate or how does that look at Trinet? So we work, we're a very collaborative company, just generally speaking. So, I mean, we have partnerships all across and we work cross-functionally. So we've got a lot of teams outside of legal that we partner with. My legal ops managers actually lead projects and are engaging with other teams outside of the legal department. So it's across the business, whether it's BizArc or engineering or marketing or our customer experience team. And we too like have a attorney that's usually part of our project, whatever initiatives we have going, we like to have that oversight. And so it is a horizontal line like across the company that where we have these partnerships. So in all sincerity, like in our law department, we have incredibly low turnover. So we're not dealing with a lot of change in that respect. Mm-hmm. People tend to come and wish to stay, which is great. But it's a lot, it still provides the opportunity for them to, you know, continue to develop and grow and engage with the rest of the business to build their own brand. But we have found that we, I mean, we just, we work with essentially every department when we are the drivers of, you know, the particular initiative, especially. Awesome. And Eric, is there, you know, anything on your end that you think you can set the platform for enabling and empowering your legal managers to kind of legal ops managers to have their own voice and... Yeah, we view our legal ops folks as a, as a part of the larger biz ops team, right? And you've got folks from across GNA, whether it's HR ops, IT ops, finance ops, who all make up that team and work together and figure out, meet on a regular basis to talk about what things they're all working on, what things that we could potentially work on together, whether or not it's a project to integrate our ERP system into our contract management system, or if it's our legal hold software with what IT is doing, right? Or what new software IT is looking to roll out that we're now going to have to do a discovery on those type of things. We've all got to be in sync constantly across the entire company. And especially for things like a lot of what we did was, uh, right, we look at product by design from the beginning. And so we've got to be integrated in the very kind of in all areas of the company from the very beginning of ideas. So trying to make sure that we are spread far and wide. And the only way to do that is really to embed yourselves with all of those teams. So I mean, a lot of times we sat with them. So we, right, we, at our company, we had floating desks in the other areas where we worked closely with. So not only we sit in the legal team, we'd float around on other days of the week into the other areas in our legal ops folks for the areas that they covered. Awesome. So then I kind of want to talk about the roles, not just ops, you know, there's, there's paralegals, there's contract implementation, all sorts of stuff. If you could choose one, if you were a sole GC and you had to choose 
one, what would that be and why? I know that's really hard and hopefully nobody on your team is watching. <laughs> Kelsey, but is there, you know, if you, if you kind of took a step back from these like fantastic teams that you guys have built out and you kind of had to choose that person in that specific role, what would that, what would that be? Is it, are you going with a paralegal or outside of that? Are you, you thinking about somebody more from like that eagle eye operational lens? It's difficult to answer because so much of our team is just rooted in cross-training and being the dynamic player. So although the titles may be different throughout our legal department, each one of our paralegals is a contract specialist, is a legal ops person. And so they all kind of work in different roles on a day-to-day basis. They're all managing contracts. They're all, you know, helping, you know, support litigation efforts. They're all a part of our legal ops team. And so whether or not there's a specific title that I would hire, I, I, I don't know that there is. I would really be looking to that dynamic legal professional as, as a major player in no matter the size of a legal department that I was on. Right. Trina, I see you nodding your head. I totally agree with Kelsey. I mean, picking just one would be a challenge for sure. If I really, really was forced to, and if we took like a legal ops professional outside of the like that, that scope and we were focusing on something that we would need, I would probably focus on a contracts professional just because of the volume of contracts that we have. But it would be really hard because I think that you, if you were, if you had to settle on one person, you would need someone to Kelsey's point that was incredibly dynamic and could provide support in a number of different capacities. So like that would be very challenging. And I'm really glad I don't have to make that decision. (laughs) (laughs) And Eric, what about you? Echo the exact same sentiments. It's It's a really tough decision. I actually made an interesting decision when joining Archer. So we posted our first hire to hire a head of legal ops. That was our first hire that we were trying to hire at Archer after I joined. And then, you know, I decided, I was like, you know what? I don't want to hire a head of legal ops. I want to be the head of legal ops. And decided <laughs> instead we'd hire other attorneys and that I would focus my day-to-day on all of the legal ops stuff. And we'll build additional folks on the team. But so I've been building out, I've done did all the build out of the contract management system, right? Been importing all of our legacy contracts, standing up our e-billing tool. So doing all of that. So I know one of the questions came in about what roles a non-JD can play in a one yeah. lawyer legal department. You need someone that can do all those things, right? I mean, last week we imported 15,000 legacy contracts into our system, right? All of those things that need to get done from an operations perspective that allow you to operate way more efficiently going forward, but that you may not have the time in your day as a small legal department to do. I think the problem is you're oftentimes drinking from a fire hose trying to respond to the daily requests, barrage of requests that you get and things that need to get done. You don't have the time to step back and say, okay, how, do, how would we rebuild this, right? So I try to block a lot of my day off from the, the, the work that I do to support the business and really trying to figure out how to move forward all the projects we're doing on the legal ops side. So I block almost half of every one of my day whether it's build a new workflow on our contract management system. Last week, we were right going to one of our new open trading windows. I was looking at how much time it was taking us to approve our employees around the company to approve them to be able to trade in our stock in an open trading window. It was taking about 15 to 20 minutes per request. And so instead, we built a new workflow that we could do within our uh, one of our systems that allowed us to do it in like two clicks, right? So spending time to do those things. So whether or not it's you or your team, you got you to make sure it's priority. Yeah. And Eric, I'm, I'm going to stick with you for a second on this one. And I kind of think that transitions well into how you're thinking about setting your team, your legal team. And I guess it's not just your other attorneys, but your legal professionals all up for success. You know, you all collectively meeting weekly. What does that look like on your team? 
Yeah, definitely. So weekly staff meeting, for sure. We spend time every week kind of going over the, the highest priority items and the biggest issues that we're all facing. We do that all the way up to the senior executive level at the company and expect that each department is doing that as well. And we do that as a legal department to really understand kind of all the complexities we're facing and hopefully cut things off at the pass and raise issues up. So Yes, we're definitely doing that on a, on a weekly basis. Always thinking about how we can do it better, more efficiently, and and do those type of things. I mean, I've been at different size legal departments. I was at, at Fitbit where we were thirty, right? At Google, it was a thousand, and so you obviously do that differently there, right? And here at Archer, we're back to two, but hiring for five right now, right? So I think it all depends. Like one of the things that that you did at Google was on a weekly basis, right? From all around the legal team, you drafted these things they called snippets, right? And those were uh, kind of key legal issues that were going on or key items that were going on each of the legal areas. And those funneled up to the GC at Google so he could keep track of what was going on at all levels. So depending on the size of the organization, you have to do things very differently. But I think it's it's super important to make sure you're staying in tune with what's going on. Awesome. Kelsey, how do you set your team up for success? Yeah, I think exactly the same. I and mean, we take advantage of, of the time we have together in the office, but we're also kind of in this interesting time period post-COVID where we're not always in the office together. So utilizing all of our technology we have available to be in constant communication and continue to have that really collaborative department that you know we had pre-pandemic and through all of this great technology, we we're able to keep in place as a team, which I think helps so much. And really helping all of our, whether they're attorneys or non-JD roles, helping everyone to become those dynamic players is what really ultimately sets the entire department up for, for success. It's, you know, it's only as successful as your, your weakest link. And so just making sure that everybody, you know, is in the loop on the different projects they have going on and has the support they need from, you know, the team members who have been a part of similar projects in the past, but also making sure that the work is spread around so that everybody gets an opportunity to learn the different elements of our business. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what helps to keep our team really successful. And Trina, how do you set your team up for success at Trina? So we've actually developed a project tracker so that we can size the work and we understand what everyone's capacity is. So we, and we've actually just done it ourselves. We didn't acquire a tool or software. We just sort of developed our own tracker and created our own sort of attributes for how we assign time based on the work that's being done and the work that's allocated to each of the individuals so that we can ensure that we're not over capacity. And so we understand what we can take on and when we need to say no, because we do have to say no sometimes and to allow us to manage our work well, so we can actually focus on the things we're intending to do and get them done well. So there's that. We have regular project meetings, stand-ups with our project stakeholders. We have regular uh, departmental meetings that allows everyone to sort of share the work that's being done. And we do the same with, with our senior leadership team. So that way, everyone is aware of the work that we're doing and how it's progressing. And we also issue a report on that work so that they understand this is what's being done. You know, helps us to just sort of re-emphasize our value as well so that they're seeing how we're progressing and what wins we have. And, and I think it also helps our, our CLO when she's having her conversations and in support of the wins that she communicates as well for our department. Awesome. Quick one word answer from each of you, just so we can provide some tactical input here. What's your favorite legal ops software, Trina? Actually, it's something we recently got, Surtree. And it's not a legal ops software. It is, yeah. it is actually a tool, but it is 
it has changed the game for us. So I would say Surgery right now. Awesome. Eric? Definitely Ironclad. I use it across all areas of our business. It's been invaluable for us. How about you, Kelsey? Ours is our SharePoint task manager system. I mean, that it keeps us rolling every single day. I don't know what I do without it. Yep. And we see here a lot of spot draft as well. If you guys need a couple of other options there. We are mindful of time at this point, but I wanted to kind of end it with where you guys envision legal departments going and how they're going to... What is what is the future of, of the legal department? What does that look like through your lens? Eric? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that we're at a pretty big crossroads where technology is going to really change how legal practice is done. I mean, for one example that we've seen recently that we've adopted is Right, you're starting to see a big push towards open source contracts, right? Yeah. So we have a we have now adopted an open source NDA, right? So we adopted two of the leading open source NDAs as an option. We through a pretty simple form, we allow the other party to select, hey, do you like this one or do you like that one? And here's the four or five terms you can select from in, in implementing an open source NDA with us. So I think I think the way legal stuff gets done is going to change pretty yeah. fast in the next mm-hmm. five to 10 years. And things that might have been eating up a lot of our time years ago won't be the same things that are eating up our, our time going forward. So I think we're at a pretty innovative, disruptive time. I mean, you're seeing like, the largest inflows of capital ever to right legal technology from private equity and venture capital. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's really going to change the course of kind of how legal work gets done over the next three to five years. Agreed. Agreed. Trina, what about you? I agree with what Eric said. I think that there's so much innovative technology that I think it's really going to change the landscape of how legal departments function just more generally and the needs of resource within a legal department. I think that a lot of the tools that are being developed will allow you to need less humans. I think it's going to look a lot different in terms of the just the overall makeup of a law department. And I think you're likely to have a lot more non-JD professionals in a legal team to help kind of manage those things as opposed to hiring of more attorneys. So yeah, I, I, I definitely think technology is going to cause a lot of change in the space. And Kelsey, where do you see things shifting? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think a lot of those great tools that are that we're seeing come out and legal departments are able to utilize, again, legal is seen as, as a cost center by many businesses. And so it's sometimes difficult for a business at large to see the value in, in purchasing some of those tools to to support the legal department. And so where legal can emphasize that is, you know, as we talked about earlier in our discussion, just highlighting those efficiencies. And I think a lot of those efficiencies are are highlighted in how our non-JDs are able to utilize some of those tools. And so I really, you know, for the future of of our legal departments, it's relying on a lot of those non-JD roles to highlight where they need technology to be for, for the success of the legal department. Awesome. This is a wonderful conversation. I know we're going to get flooded with questions and comments after the fact. Thank you so much for the insight. I know it was really helpful. I'm sure it was helpful for many people on the call. And we will be shifting over in the next week or so to an innovator series. So thank you for everyone for watching. And our innovator series is going to be focused on legal leaders and budding industries. So not only going to be talking about tactical stuff like this, we're kind of shifting to more industry specific conversations. And June 16th, everyone, we're going to be talking with Drew Morris from TRM Labs in the crypto space. Everybody has those same JD, non-JD needs, regardless of the industry. But thank you again for joining today's call. And we will see you guys on the 16th. Thank you, guys.